legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Carl Abrahamson, who joins us to discuss his book, Source Magic, The Origin of Art, Science and Culture. Since the dawn of time, magic has been the node around which all human activities and culture revolve. As magic entered the development of science, art, philosophy, religion, myth and psychology, it still retained its essence that we have a dynamic connection with all other forms of life. Exploring the source magic that flows beneath the surface of culture and oculture throughout the ages, Abrahamson offers a magical anthropological journey from ancient Norse shamanism to the modern magic of occultists like Genesis P. Orridge. He looks at how human beings relate to and are naturally attracted to magic. He examines in depth the consequences of magical practice and how the attraction to magic can be corrupted by both religious organizations and occult societies. He shows how the positive effects of magic are instinctively grasped by children who view the world as magical. Sharing his more than 30 years of experiences in the fields of occulture and magical anthropology, Abrahamson explores ancient and modern magical history to reveal the source magic that connects us all, past and present. Hello and welcome, Carl, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi, Greg, and thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Time flies. It feels like yesterday I was on here, uh, but now I'm back. Yeah, and uh, we're pleased to have you. Now, you've got a new book out at the moment. Um, it's entitled Source Magic, The Origin of Art, Science and Culture. And this is actually a sort of an anthology, a collection of essays, articles, and talks that you've given in the past. So our, our conversation is going to be pretty wide-ranging and inspired by some of the topics and thoughts in the book. Um, just before we dive into that, for listeners who don't know, give them a quick potted bio. I have, uh, for many years, um, enjoyed calling myself a magical anthropologist. And and what that means is that I'm very interested in in magic in itself and also how it relates to culture and how culture relates to magic and how it's been very intertwined with um, uh, human culture basically in, in, from from very early times when we had sort of this shamanic core and onwards throughout the millennia and and then you know working by proxy in organized religions and philosophies etc so magic has always been with us and it's still with us and today we have this fascinating uh, phenomenon called that we call a culture just like my uh, the book before my previous book <laughs> and and um so that's i like to look at these things i like to be immersed in magic in many ways um as professionally i'm an i'm an author i'm a writer and i write about th- uh, these kinds of things and also about other things and i also write fiction and that 
delves out also this sort of expands into filmmaking and and a bit of music and stuff like that but mainly i i am interested in magic okay well you you mentioned the word a culture there and that was the the key word in the title of one of your previous books and we do yes. have an, we did an interview around that so if and listeners will find that linked up on the interview page uh for this one uh interestingly if you know i don't know how long this has been the case but if you now do um a internet search for the term of culture mm-hmm. uh in one of your whatever your favorite search engine is it turns up i mean just almost countless results which is really interesting mm-hmm. that certainly didn't used to be the case no no absolutely no it's it's uh um uh, I tend to call it uh, acculturation, you know, uh, when things uh, move into uh, main culture or mainstream culture, and then it creates kind of an occulture if the impetus or the sparks come from something that's been specifically occulted. Um, and, and I call that process occulturation, just like there is an other anthropological term called acculturation when, when cultures meet, so to speak. Uh, and I find that, that this has been moving uh, very quickly. Uh, and I think it has to do with the joint forces of, um, you know, thematic presence in, in uh, mainstream culture. Also um, the expansion within academia, um, both in terms of history of ideas and also history of religion. And I'm sure there are other fields as well that can sort of contain uh, these studies of of uh, culture. So it seems that it's an exponential increase uh, of presence in, in uh, the main culture. And I think it's good. And I think uh, I've, I've written about that before and talked about it a lot, uh, why this is. And I think it's simply uh, part of our communal or sort of global uh, survival instinct that that we un- unconsciously uh, are looking for things that will make us think in a different way because it's obvious that the way that we have uh, treated ourselves, treated our biosphere, treated each other uh, has not been uh, conducive to, to survival. Uh, so I think that all of this, you know, hocus pocus stuff, whether it's Western ceremonial magic or indigenous tribes or uh, psychedelic uh, enlightenment or whatever it is that is sort of has been in the occult uh, and it has now gone into occulturation. It, it's there for a reason. It's not uh, light entertainment. It's not something to, to you know, point your finger at. Uh, mockingly it's something that carries substance even in the most sort of bland mainstream forms uh and i think there's a reason for it well for my part i would say that, that off the top of my head at least 50 percent, if not more of the podcasts i produce boil down to uh basically what you're saying is like offering mm. different ways of looking at uh, yourself looking at the world looking at other people looking at the cosmos and it's the future of the species is at stake really yeah, so it's pretty, yeah. pretty big stuff even in some of the unlikeliest subjects no i mean and, and it's not no small process either because uh we can talk about you know what could help us at this point in in time and space and 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 our uh, sort of pre-apocalyptic uh, mind frames and i think that you know it could be many things depending on who we are it could be you know going on an ayahuasca retreat and finding ourselves in that way or or going to see some 
of the seemingly endless uh, Hilma of Clint exhibitions that are touring the world, uh, or or uh, now there are movies about her too, and it's sort of um, it's really. Uh, essentially no big deal. I mean, Hilma was a great Swedish artist. She was ahead of the curve and she wove in spiritual things. But the reason why it's so big is because uh, it was natural for her. She had no um, second thoughts. She had no moral qualms. She just uh, painted, listened to the voices she had inside of her spiritual masters, told her to paint these huge paintings for the temple, and they became real masterworks, and she now finally uh, is getting her uh, claim and acclaim and, and kudos. So that's, that's beautiful. Uh, but really what she did was basically what all of us should be doing, we should be acknowledging and validating uh, information that comes from beneath the surface. And on our individual level, that means coming from, you know, meditations and and, um, other mind frames or states of mind that we can uh, put ourselves in. And it's not dramatic. It doesn't require drugs or any hocus pocus. It's just uh, uh, conscientious thinking and allowing ourselves to think in a new way and also not discarding the impulses and, and visions that might come from that. That That's the key thing. You know, we have to take whatever it is that we find on the inside seriously, just like, you know, big artists like Hilma did or some tribe in South America or some someone in Africa or an Asian shaman or, or uh, some some um, people immersed in Nordic magics or or Wicca or, or any, any of these things. Everything is good if it leads on to these potential self-realizations that can help individuals in their individuation processes. Because if if you don't start with yourself, then it's going to be very hard to build something together. There needs to be a joint acceptance and and, and um, acknowledgement of the fact that we are, uh, for good or bad, in the same boat together. Now, as mentioned, um, this book, the new one, is a sort of an anthology, you know, collection of pieces from different time periods mm-hmm. uh, on, you know, ostensibly on different topics. But there are certainly common themes woven through there that, you know, red lines that, that, that join yeah. them together. One of them, certainly for me, it comes up again and again, is this idea that in, in culture, uh, in society, even in world events and, and, you know, events beyond, we're missing a lot of meaning or failing to see any meaning whatsoever uh, because we are perhaps not aware of or not looking at basically hidden dimensions, other aspects um, that lie beneath or behind what's unfolding in the five sense 3D reality. And yeah. be- because because that information is sometimes missing, that can be actually most of what's going on, which is why there's so much bafflement in, in our species about, for example, why we seem to have this death drive. You know, people don't understand why we're, you know, basically, you know, seem to be like on a suicidal path. It doesn't seem to make any sense because mm. if you talk to most people, that's not what they want. People talk about, sure, they talk in disparaging terms about other people and about the species in general. You know, mm. human beings being a cancer on the planet is a fashionable trope. But mm. most individuals don't want to sort of die a horrible death immediately (laughs) that Mm -hmm. but that seems to be what's in in store for uh, us perhaps not as individuals but as a species in the you know in the medium term uh, Mm -hmm. if we don't change the way that we think about things Mm -hmm. no absolutely that that's exactly it and i think that uh, 
uh, if we talk about we're very far from the center, we're very far from the middle path. It sort of seems that this pendulum, uh, existential pendulum, is swinging quite extremely. And we have, for instance, war on uh, European soil again. And I mean, that's something that when I grew up was kind of. Um, you know, not unheard of, but it was sort of uh, hard to fathom that it could happen again. Uh, then, of course, we had the the, the civil war in, in Yugoslavia or those those regions uh, in the 90s. Then now, 20 years later, um, there's the, the Ukraine-Russian uh, conflict. And it's kind of, you know, if you look at these um, leaders, they are really remnants, uh, these strongmen leaders, they're remnants of an ancient uh, time. It's like uh, classical empire building, it goes together with empires. Uh, and it seems that we should have learned because so many times they have popped up and it always ends in uh, dismal uh, scenarios for a lot of people, of course, but mainly for the dictators themselves. And and uh, I mean, it's really sad that people cannot um, learn from history. And then, of course, you can have scenarios in which in certain countries it's not allowed to teach history or certain aspects exactly for that reason. Uh, however, uh, the world as a whole, and now with the internet, it is possible to make assessments and understand what history is and what history has contained. And the fact that if you have a kind of not a monoculture, but a, a, a mono rulership, basically an, a, a dictatorship, that is never good. It's not good for the people, and it will end really badly for for the dictator. And and it seems to be tied in with um, kind of a an addiction to power in itself uh, that usually goes hand in hand with empire building. Meaning, when a region, a country, or a nation, or a, or just an area uh, becomes so wealthy that uh, corruption becomes. It seems to be inherent in human um, human culture, unfortunately, uh, and then it just snowballs from there. And everybody wants to have the power, and those in power will cling to it. And that's uh, when everything else becomes, uh, and everyone else becomes subservient to the will of one or very few uh, people. And they are never looking out for the people. <laughs> They're all only looking out for themselves. And and these are just very, very plain and basic facts. And and I think um, it's going to be very interesting to, to uh, watch the uh, sad, uh, unfortunately, escalation of this uh, Ukrainian war and how it will end. Because uh, I think after this uh, hurdle, in a way, uh, I think people will realize that let let this be the last one. Let this be the last dictator because uh, we have other much more serious uh, issues and problems to deal with. So it's almost like it's a distraction from uh, the real problems. You know, the, the problems of, of um, the people in power in Russia are sort of kind of timeless, petty problems that unfortunately cause a lot of problems for uh, for a lot of people, uh, but they are pretty clear. The dynamics are clear, whereas the greater dynamics of, of um, uh, biotopic uh, issues are 
so much more abstract in a way. We don't really know how to or if we can handle them, uh, but those are the ones that we should be focusing on. So it's almost like like it's a kind of a, a highly unnecessary uh, diversion or, or uh, irritation, um, like a sore on a skin, um, where in fact the the body is is diseased, but everything is focused on some kind of petty sore on the skin. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I really hope it works out because it's so pathetic, it's so pointless because humanity has been going through these things uh, so many times throughout history, and and um, one would think that it's high time to learn, but unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be the case. Well, the pendulum analogy that you used is very apt. The thing with pendulums is that they tend to spend very little time in the center. Yeah. You know, they pass through. And when we say center, I'm not thinking of like some kind of, you know, middle of the road mediocrity. I'm more thinking mm-hmm. more in terms of balance. Yes, absolutely. So, you yeah. know, in, like in your in our personal lives, for example, or relationships, any aspect of life, whether it's individual or societal or global, extremes are rarely sustainable. You know, the, 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 the pendulum always wants to come back to uh, the center. And eventually, I suppose that's where it comes to rest. But then mm. something else sets it off again, I suppose. We, we look at that. We, we have to think in terms of millennia, I suppose, in terms of human history, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to see that that dynamic in action turning to talk about the word magic obviously that's in the title of your book and mm-hmm. some listeners might be thinking well, what's magic got to do with anything of what we've discussed so far now i'm going to get you to put magic into this this wider context you're you know what, what you see that as what that means to you what you see i know how you see that operating in the world mm-hmm. but the term itself is so loaded isn't it because just like if you if you say astrology people think you're talking about horoscopes in a, in a cheap newspaper yeah uh, without the, the understanding of the wider subject and when you say magic they think of either stage magic or of something basically that's a, that doesn't exist. It was of former ages, you know, witches and wizards and all mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Something that we now see in the movies. And I know that when I had the parapsychologist Dean Raiden on to talk about his book, Real Magic, mm-hmm. and he's written a nice review of your new book. Um, mm-hmm. But he said that he was actually quite reluctant to put the word magic into the title of his book. But the publishers, you know, having looked at the content, they really wanted it in there because it was, you know, it is an eye-catching, provocative word to use. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's it's a big question or or several. But I mean, yes, it is a a catchy title and it's very attractive and it has a sort of a magnetic pull. But that in itself leads on to the fact that there is substance there. Because usually what we're attracted to is something that uh, we feel drawn to for very, I would say, instinctual reasons. And again, magic has very much to do with... with, uh, potential survival and uh, yes there are there are different sort of essays and themes in the book but the the main ones are uh, that magic um, is so uh, central so uh, quintessential to um, human culture and it's always been there it's only in let's call it uh, modern times and i don't mean like from 19th century, but but further back than that, but sort of uh, civilized times, that it has been pushed aside for proxy structures that take on the 
uh, original function of magic has been completely integrated in the tribe, for instance. That's that's a good model to look at because the tribe is small. It has, you know, we can uh, have a good overview. And in the tribe, there is the shaman. Uh, and the shaman transcends him or herself, goes into the inner world or, or you know, outer, outer world and has uh, visions and brings back information and knowledge and wisdom that is of uh, use of benefit to the the tribe as such um that was there from the beginning and has traveled in our genetic package as part of the survival instinct because the information that was given by the shaman helped people to make decisions either you know the leaders did it or communal decisions um that made them prosper and survive so it's not something that's been sort of um, outside it's not something that's uh, estranged something weird that one person deals with the outcast or the outsider yes the person might have been a little bit weird or or um, uh, different but it's because that person has been experiencing things that the normal tribal member hasn't um, so as we travel along um, throughout the times then of course we have larger societal structures uh, we have little towns agrarian cultures pop up uh, instead of nomadic but the, the nomadic also exist parallel to that and when it grows in simply in numbers um, you can't have that personal relationship to your shaman so something else comes in the proxy people little congregations little religious systems um priests that uh, relay information that may actually not be shamanic at all, meaning not coming from this gnostic relationship to their inner selves, but might already be in tradition. So it means they, they become interpreters of tradition rather than getting first-hand knowledge from their own um, inside spheres. And of course, that as we move along even further, closer to us, it just snowballs and becomes completely um, agnostic in a way. That's not the real meaning. But, but I mean, it's so distanced from the personal um, experience of information where it actually comes from. Uh, so this thing that we've had genetically and that we still do uh, is connected to the survival instinct that it's not something that we can discard because it will make itself heard it will make itself uh, known again and that again is exactly what's happening now with the acculturation but then of course we have uh, magic also on uh, the level that i find very important also which is also featured in the book and that's individuation meaning the individual's process of refinement on the path to finding meaning existential meaning um and in that uh, i i ascribe that you know call it a, a magical process because you transform something from one thing to another and preferably then something that has been uh, lower or worse into something that's higher and better um there's no like uh, religious um um, connotations in that it's just something you know you've been perhaps depressed and haven't found your way and then suddenly you find your way and you move towards your goals and that will make you happy that will make you find meaning uh, so in that sense 
uh, it's magical because you do transform yourself. You go through a metamorphosis into something, uh, a character that that finds meaning in life. And I don't think we can strive for anything more. And when you find that meaning, um, then you will be uh, apt to uh, or or be able to um, uh, understand. You know, the concept of empathy is more pronounced in people who are happy themselves, who are you know satisfy themselves uh, because if you're constantly frustrated or or uh, aggressive then you don't really care about other people you become a cynic instead so if we want to solve this overall catastrophic situation uh, we need to fix ourselves as individuals first uh, and that's a magical process and the way it works on a larger scale a uh, larger perspective is that it it um we need that communal magic that comes from looking at information in new ways, looking at where information comes from and also the interpretation. And that is inherently magical also. In our contemporary culture, the term magical thinking is a byword for delusional thinking, really. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. You know, wishing impossible things is the cure sang back in the day. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. but in children, we 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 see what we would also identify as magical thinking in a way that uh, young children, especially, will come out with. They'll look at the world in, in this unfiltered way, you know, unblinkered way, and they'll have thoughts and insights, and some of which you know sounds to the adults just like um, harmless nonsense. But they they have this uh, more integrated way of seeing things, and although there are psychological changes that take place in humans as they grow we are approximately age six and age 12 and age 18 and you know we our mm -hmm. thinking does change of course it's largely shaped by culture and society these days and you know in education systems for example and starting with your parents of course you know your family members those around you basically the closest to mm -hmm. you and often if if they have suffered from any of the whether they experience it directly or not, but this sense of uh, of, of meaninglessness in, in you know the early twenty first century, or the, the idea of there being no purpose to anything, mm -hmm. and that uh, matter is all that matters. Of course, that's bound to filter through, and that's one of the great tragedies, I think, of probably the entire scientific age, really, over the last couple of hundred years at least, but certainly the second half of the 20th century now into the 21st is this feeling that for better or worse even if you go about your you know your life with a smile on your face ultimately there's no meaning or no purpose inherently in anything and if you can find meaning in anything it might be mm. through uh, your work or a relationship or acquisitiveness you know maybe you know your car your house your, your mm -hmm. whatever it happens to be so and but the idea of there being any higher meaning or purpose no that's that's just magical thinking once again mm -hmm. absolutely and i think also it's very interesting because as you say it's almost like a derogatory term however it's very easy and i've tried to to present this as um uh, a premise or or, or it's, it's not a theory but a premise or an idea is the fact that magical thinking is the foundation of of the uh, of empiricism because you know people talk about empiricism as that you know it's the truth and it's rational thinking and it's like um, pristine and it's uh, you know the power of deduction and all these things however the foundation of empirical thinking uh, is 
magical thinking because if you go back what is it that they're working with well they're working with theories a theory always begins in a speculation uh, so it basically um whatever in which you know whichever natural science that that we're talking about uh, it always begins with magical thinking uh, the specula speculation that what if question mark what if we split this atom? What is it possible to split this atom? Is it sort of really um, thoughts that, you know, a hundred years ago would deem them unfit to work? They would be uh, regarded as insane. You know, so this also um, how science catches up with itself in a way. But again, schematically, what the empirical method that we hold um, that's almost like a, a, a religious thing. It's like it's the religion of worshipping statistics, you know. Um, there is always something at the very uh, foundation, and that those are the crazy notions. Those are the crazy ideas and and um, uh, potential situations that can be churned and checked and double checked and potentially end up as something not only uh, usable. Uh, of of something of good um, usage for a lot of people, and of course, thereby also profitable. Uh, but there's no scientific theory that's been validated that has not begun um, with magical thinking. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.